Amen. Thank you, Drew and Cameron and Stephanie and team. Good morning, church. I'm excited to worship with you this morning as we celebrate Advent together. Um, hey, uh, really, really thankful uh, to Ashley Thompson and the Gimbals and Mandy and everybody that came up here this week uh, and really helped us decorate for Christmas. Thank you all for that. We really appreciate that. Um, before we jump into corporate prayer, I just want to say that, um, look, I had a bad week with football last week, okay? Um, but I can say this, that yesterday I watched a great game and saw an amazing team win their conference. My alma mater, the Troy Trojans. It was a great game. I know we're all <laughs> excited about that. And uh, that was a ton of fun for everybody. And it didn't get worse in any way for me yesterday at all. Um, let's take an opportunity this morning uh, as we gather together. Uh, to pray. Look, we do this each week uh, here at Double Oak Chelsea, and one of my favorite things to do is to take this opportunity to pray together corporately with, with one heart and one mind toward one distinct end. This morning, I want to talk to you about, uh, for, for our corporate prayer time, I want to share with you some things about giving uh, in this season, and then I want to encourage us uh, to pray that we will, as Matthew's gospel that we'll read in a moment together says, that we'll seek first the kingdom and then see the things that will be added unto us. This past week, uh, typically following Thanksgiving, the, the Tuesday beyond that is something that, that a lot of our world now calls Giving Tuesday. You may have noticed this, you may have seen online, you may have seen a ton of people share with you in some various form or capacity their desire for you to give to their very particular ministry or nonprofit. So everything from anybody that we're connected to or affiliated with universities, uh, but also nonprofits and a number of ministries this past Tuesday really asked and urged people to give. Well, well, why do it then? Why do it at that time, at that juncture in this season? And here's why. For a number of us, we are entering the most philanthropic, the most charity-based, the most giving season that we experience in a fiscal or a calendar year. In the month of December, most businesses, particularly nonprofits and ministries, even parachurch ministries, experience the lion's share of their giving in that season. Why? Well, you know, we live in America, so a lot of people are taking advantage of the tax write-offs, right? We know that. That's part of the deal. But the other thing is, I think for us, and particularly for believers, and this is a time of year where we're contemplative and we're thinking on all the blessings that God has given us, not just across our life, but particularly in this year and in this season. And as our church is growing, you've heard me share with you some financial information and communicate to you where we are as a church, and we're in deep need of continued giving. And that just doesn't mean like the folks with a lot give even more. It just means that all of us, each of us, all of us give faithfully unto the Lord as we believe God has called us here to be a part of this church and its ministry so people might know Jesus Christ and make him known. Amen? So I want to share with you this morning a passage from Matthew chapter 6. I just want us to read this together. Um, you know, I told you last week I'd taken some time off, so I feel like I got extra sermons to give. Um, I want to share with you the, these, these verses in which Jesus shares what our relationship is to things, but more importantly, Jesus communicates what God's relationship is to us. 
and the way that he cares for us. This is, these are the words of our Lord. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the word truly of our Lord, to which we say, Thanks be to God. There are many things that can characterize us. The things that we eat, the things that we wear, the things that we have. And this is a season where culturally a number of folks, even ourselves to some degree, will accumulate many of those things. We, we love to give gifts, and it's enjoyable. We should not deny it. it's enjoyable to receive gifts. Absolutely. But in the midst of all of these things, This month in the series of Advent, we're going to be called genuinely to give our lives for the sake of others. And here's what it looks like. It looks like seeking first the kingdom of God and then everything else being added to us. For all the things that that I hope and that I dream for not only myself and my family, but for you and for yours, this would be something I would love to characterize us. Man, we are a people who seek first God's kingdom. And that looks like living a life with open hands where we'd say, I'm going to give to the things that God calls me to give. To church, to ministries, to the things that he's doing in this world to see that people can know Jesus. Amen? Let's pray this morning together that we would simply be people who seek first the kingdom of God. And that we would trust him truly to add any and everything else to us. Amen? If we will, bow our heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Your son Jesus has laid his glory by. Father, how can we not lay everything at your feet? Would you make us those who seek first your kingdom and trust that you will add everything to us? It's a simple prayer, Father, but we need profound transformation of our hearts so that we may give of ourselves unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To the best of my ability or our ability this morning, this is as dark as I can make it. Light creeps through the windows, right? But save for the exit signs, I think, and some lights on the screen in the back, this is the only light in this room. And it's small, it's really, really tiny. But the craziest thing about light is that despite how small this flame is, 
no matter what it touches, darkness is dispelled. No matter what it touches, no matter where it goes, things come into, not just proverbially, but truly, the light. Things are seen. Things are known. There is a clarity to the place which light goes. It's no coincidence that in the darkest season of the year, we light candles to help people understand the truth of Advent, the truth of this season of waiting in which we celebrate and anticipate and sing and beg and cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to us, a people in need. We can bring the lights back up. This morning, we're going to talk about light, and particularly the light of hope. We lit a candle this morning for hope. We're going to do it in a unique way, because for the past few weeks, we've been talking very specifically about our identity and who we are. Who we are in relationship to God, who we are in relationship to one another, and who we are in relationship to the world. Throughout Advent, we're going to continue this component of understanding who we are in relationship to the world. And this is what we've walked through thus far over the past several weeks. Number one, in relationship to God, this is who we are. We understand that we are His possession. We're His possession. In relationship to one another, we understand that we are God's people. We once were not a people, as First Peter says, but now we are a people. And finally, currently, we're understanding and walking through this reality that in relationship to the world, we are proclaimers of the glory of God. That's what First Peter 2 has taught us. As we usher in Advent, we're going to continue our series and talk about what the hope is that we offer as we proclaim the very glory of God. And this morning, we're going to be looking into Isaiah chapter 9 at a passage you're likely familiar with. Verses 1 through 7, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 9 to see exactly how we do proclaim the glory of God in hope. Here's three things that I hope we learn together today as we look into Isaiah 9. Three very specific things in verses 1 through 7. Number one, Jesus goes to the dark places. Jesus goes to dark places to offer light. Number two, Jesus calls you and I. He calls us as the light of the world to go into dark places, to go into dark places and proclaim him. Finally, third, we'll understand this, Jesus brings hope. He brings real hope, real life, real joy, real peace that can be experienced. Real hope is what Jesus brings to dark places. If you will read with me, this is Isaiah Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We'll primarily be focusing on verses 1 through 2 this morning, but it's really, really important we see the whole context. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light 
shown. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Jesus truly goes to the dark places, and and that's what this passage describes as we enter this text in Isaiah chapter 9. It's really normal for us, I think, as most people who don't typically always have a huge historical understanding at times of God's people. We look at all of these places and all of these kind of geographical markers, right, these cities, these towns, these things that, that we read about, we say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know much about Zebulun. You know, Naphtali's not the thing that, that I'm really aware of. So I just kind of move beyond it and go on to what's next. But there is a distinct reason and very specific reason that Isaiah recounts these two places. And then what he describes is the northern area of the Sea of Galilee, this Galilee of the Gentiles. Why does he do that? What does it have to do with light? And what does it have to do with darkness? You need to know that in context, Isaiah is talking to a group of people who are familiar with war. They're familiar with being continually attacked and embattled and truly in battle for the majority of their existence. Specifically, these two areas are places in which Israel repeatedly was attacked and attacked and attacked. Most recently in this context by one of the most horrible empires to ever exist, the Assyrians. Merciless people who would do horrific things that I don't feel comfortable saying with kids in the room to the people of Israel and to those who followed Yahweh. These places were places of bloodshed. They were places of war. Not only that, In modern times, they had become places, to Isaiah and all his contemporaries, that were dark. Culturally, really dark. I don't know about you, but as as I grow and as as I age and as I mature, I'm I'm more frustrated, I'm more saddened, I'm more brokenhearted by some of the things that I see in the state of our world. Um. I read and I saw really challenging and and confusing and gut-wrenching pictures the other day of of Philadelphia. (laughs) 
I mean, a, a city from the inception of our nation's, the, the beginning of America, right? It just so historically profound and so many incredible things that have happened there, right? The Eagles are on a run after all. Rocky, right? They, they, these cultural moments. But this is a city that is steeped with our nation's history. And outside of Washington Square Park right now in Philadelphia are just villages of people that are living on the streets that are really not just struggling with, but are bound and slaves to substances that have perpetuated patterns of homelessness. It's just you, you, you could see this city and it looks totally desecrated. It looks culturally Void of any life, of any joy, of any hope, of any progress. All of those types of things. This is exemplified in in one of our nation's oldest and most historically rich places. That's about as close as I can kind of get to describing these areas and the dark places that they were. For all my life, I've read about Light shining on people in the darkness. Light coming to people in the dark. I want to tell you that at this state in history, this is one of the darkest places people could find. And when Isaiah says that in this darkness, light shone, he's saying something Almost absurd. He's saying that this is the place to which, in which, the region in, the area in which Jesus Christ the Lord comes and takes on flesh. I want you to try and comprehend that. That along the Jordan... That in this area, this northern section, this place that's oppressed and it's influenced by pagan worship and life. In this area, this is the place to which our Savior is born. Now you and I typically think of mangers and inns and no room. And a scene where there is cattle and and lambs. And I always wonder why there weren't chickens, because it just feels like there would be chickens there, you know? Um, I want to be very clear and say that, that, that I'm not trying to destroy or disrupt anybody's picture of the beauty of Christ's birth by no means. But I want you to see, and I want to see, and I want to understand what God's Word says about the fact That Jesus Christ came not to a world that needed a little improvement. Not to a place that needed some help. Or, you know, we need to spruce it up. Let's just put some more ornaments on it or decorate it. And then it will be better. No, he came to the darkest place. And to the darkest recesses of our hearts. So that we might be truly, as we just sung, reconciled. To God. That's what Isaiah means in verses 2 
or specifically in verses 1 and 2. That this Galilee of the nations, and that, that language, the nations, is meant to imply that this is this cultural melting pot, but even more so than cultural, this pagan area in which Jesus is born into. This is no place for the king of the world. And yet this is the exact place to which he comes. What do we learn from this? What do we see from this? That this is the very heart of Jesus, that he goes to the dark places to redeem, to recover, to save. So as we looked last week at 1 Peter in chapter 2 and verse 9, this idea that we'd be proclaimers of the one who drew us out of darkness into light. This is what Isaiah means. Jesus has come to the dark places. And just as Jesus has gone to those dark places, he calls us to the dark places. Look at Matthew's gospel in chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, and you're going to see something that you're likely very familiar with, this phrase, this understanding of who we are. It's part of our identity, right, as proclaimers that we're the light of the world. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, the one who deserves glory. The Father, just as Drew helped us understand and see in that Philippians passage that Jesus lays his glory back so that the Father may be glorified so that we might be reconciled to him. Jesus calls us to live as light to the world. We're to be a people who are proclaimers of being redeemed and drawn out of darkness into light. This is the way in which we live. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So this is our identity, right? This is who we are. We are God's possession, and we're in relationship with one another as his people for this purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Of all the hope that we can speak of, this is paramount. This is preeminent, that we once were dead and have been made alive. That I once lived in darkness, you once lived in darkness, and God has brought us to light only through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus and us repenting of our sins and trusting in him. That is what it means to live in the light. And as we live in the light, God has called us to go into dark places. Why in the world would he tell us to be a light only where the light is? I don't know about you, but I can light another candle and I can draw that light toward it, but at some point it can only illuminate it so much. It's also alive with life and light and love. But no, you and I are called to go to the dark places to share the hope that we have within us. This is a longer passage, but I want to share this with you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he shares something about what it looks like to live as Christians. And one of the main metaphors, one of the main things he uses, one of the main things he describes 
is how we're to be people of light. Look at what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay. Well, what does that look like? This is what he says. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named, even be named rather, among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says this is not the life that the Christian is called to live. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Why? Why don't we do those things? Why don't we affiliate with those things, why are they not a part of our character in our life? Here's why. For at one time, you were darkness. You were darkness. And Paul's very specific with his words towards there. He's saying that we embodied it, that it was a part of us, that we were one with darkness. Not we were near it, not we were around it, not we were close to it, not we were subject to its influence, but we were darkness. Objects of wrath. He says, but now. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, listen to this language, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. You probably haven't met anybody that doesn't want to hurt people's feelings as much as me. But here's the reality. We're called to walk in the light, to live in the light, to be proclaimers of the light. The fact that we've been redeemed out of darkness. To share what God has done. Absolutely. But also to expose the darkness that exists in this world. We do that not out of our own pride, not out of our own glory, far from it. But instead, because we are children of light, walking in the light, Jesus has called us to go into the dark places as light so that death and immorality and all of these things that bring such pain and heartache to the heart of God and separate us from Him, that they might be exposed. I want you to read along with me and see this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, this is from his reflection on the Psalms. But this is what he says. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We're all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Do you know what he's saying? Light has to come into darkness. There has to be this place in which we're exposed for what we are, and quite frankly, for what we're not. 
And thanks be to God that someone in our life, those of us who've trusted in Christ, that someone in our life walked in light and lived in light and proclaimed light so that, so that they could be, in, in the most beautiful way, the Spirit working through them, this dim, glimmering conception of God so that God could break our heart, convict us of our sin, and draw us unto himself. Thanks be to God for that. And the people around you in your life, you're that now. That's who you are. That's who I am. We're people that are called to proclaim the goodness of Jesus in the darkest of places. We're to expose it. This doesn't mean we just run away and hide. I, I, I look into Matthew's gospel and I see what Jesus proclaims in Matthew 5 verses 14 through 16 where he says that you're the light of the world. And he says the light's not meant to be hidden. This isn't just out of shame that people are hiding. This isn't out of the fact that, well, I don't really understand how to share the gospel like other people, how to share the, how to share the gospel. There's a real component in which the people who followed Yahweh were, were fearful of being near and around others. So instead of that, that sin and that life that existed with those around them being exposed, they just hid they just hid. There was a retreating. There was, a, there was kind of this holy huddle of sorts where it was like, we just, we got to stay together. And we need to stay convicted. We need to stay accountable. We need to stay assured of our faith. But you and I are called to go to dark places. And I don't know what those look like for you. I, I don't expect you to be like in an alley in the mean streets of Chelsea in the next week or so. All right? Walmart, Walmart right? That's it. That's it. But there are people in your life that are in dark places. They're in dark places. They've lost a loved one and they're contemplating whether their life has value, whether they matter. There are people on our streets that are finding hope at the bottom of a bottle. There are people that you and I are connected to that have, have, have an experience in their past that has riddled them with shame and horror and pain that is seemingly so deep they think they'll never recover. You and I are called to go to dark places. Why? Because Jesus brings hope to those places. Jesus brings hope to the dark places. Look into John chapter 12, John's gospel chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. And Jesus is going to continue to use the language of light. This is after the triumphal entry prior to the crucifixion. This is what he says. He says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world, and here, here's the, this picture again that he uses, as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's hope. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. 
what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Look at what Jesus says. That he is light. He's come to bring light to darkness. To bring hope to dark places. How does he do that? He does that through you and I. Do you know this? That Jesus has invited us into the process of being light into dark, giving light to darkness. That he calls us the light of the world, and that's what we truly are. If he says that about us, that's who we are. We're the light of the world. And we get to be a part of proclaiming hope to the hopeless in the darkest and most broken places. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. A place from which you and I can draw extreme confidence about who we are in relationship with the world and the fact that we're called to proclaim light in the darkness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It made me think of this phrase from C.S. Lewis from The Great Divorce that says this. Everything. Everything becomes more and more itself. Here is joy that cannot be shaken. Our light can swallow up your darkness, but your darkness cannot now infect our light. I want you to think about this. If you're in Jesus Christ, and the Son of God proclaims to you that you are the light of the world, and for illustrative purposes, let's pretend this is you and me, okay? We acknowledge Everything that light touches, what does it do? It illuminates. It brings clarity. It reveals what is in the darkness. And it offers hope with that clarity. The opportunity for wisdom to see and to truly understand. To give light, to give a picture to that which is lost. Light is undefeated. It's undefeated. Nobody's got to vote it in or figure out if it's in the top four. Light's in. Undefeated. All right? The light that you are called to proclaim, you need to know this, is undefeated. There is no way in which your attempts to share hope with others will fail. They will not. God's word does not return void, and you and I have a hope to give others that they might know the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son, so that they could have eternal life. Amen? Could we be people who walk in the light. Three simple things to, 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 to really recap as our worship team comes. One, we want to be people who live in the light. 
We live in the light of Jesus. How do these other candles get lit? They get lit by hanging out with where the light is. They, get, they touch the flame. Now, we need to be people who are spending time with, trusting and resting and walking with Jesus. And as we do that, we take opportunities to shine our light in the darkness. It's on our street. It's in our schools. It's in our workplace. It's on our teams. It's with families. It's with people that we gather with throughout the holidays. May shine your light in the darkness. Simply, boldly proclaim and share what Christ has done for you. Think about it in terms of darkness and light, where you were and how life was dark, and now how life is light and life because of Jesus. Finally, watch the light overcome. Go share what Jesus has done with others. Go share hope with others. Go share Jesus himself, his life with others, and watch the light overcome the darkness. Because you and I, on this Sunday, as we celebrate, we embrace and celebrate and recognize the hope that we have in Jesus. And that language that Liz used earlier as she led us into into worship is so important. That word hope in the New Testament is typically not one that means anything other than this. Confident expectation. It means it's already done, I just don't see it yet. And that's what we have in Jesus. We have hope. We have a confident expectation. Last week, we all came to these tables together and we proclaimed these three truths. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We eat, we drink with hope. This morning, we sing with hope. We pray in hope. Not wishful thinking, but confident expectation for what God will do. As we look at who we are in relationship to the world, we have hope to offer. First, we've got to see that Jesus has gone to the darkest places. And we know that because he's come to us. Second, we know he's called us to go to dark places. And finally, we get to be a part of him using us to give hope to others in those dark places. Amen? Let's celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus Christ this morning as we stand and prepare to sing together. If you will, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Heavenly Father, we are thankful that that we have hope in you. We have joy in you. We have life in you. Jesus, we have lived in dark places. Things that we've done, things that we've said, things that we've thought, ways that we have not honored you, ways that we've rebelled, and yet you, Lord, have loved us. You've come to us. And you've redeemed us. To us who once walked in darkness, Jesus, you are our light. So this morning, we glorify you, we praise you, we trust in you, and we proclaim that you are our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.